We're going to ask the ushers to come forward now and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Please stand. I think you're going to want to stand for this one.
As uh, we spend a few moments together in prayer, uh, if you would like to, uh, to come and use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, I invite you to join me.
Holy Father, we do thank you that death was arrested. That we come today knowing that in Christ you have given us life, joy. We are so grateful for your grace. We thank you. We thank you for your grace in setting us free from our sin, for cleansing us from the burden of sin. Thank you for your grace in the struggles and in the difficulties of our lives. We thank you for your comfort and grace to all who grieve. We thank you for your healing grace for all who are ill and in pain. We think especially today of Karen Gardy, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Bob Brown, Louise Princell, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Ellis Bratzman, Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, and Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, and Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Emily Cricklar, and so many others. Father, we thank you for being present in the ministries of this church and in the churches around us. We pray today for the Wiscoy Baptist Church and Pastor Bennett. May your grace rest upon this congregation of believers, that they would know your loving presence with them, and that they would share that loving presence with all around them. Father, we thank you for your grace in the situations of, of our world. We pray, Father, for, uh, for all who are wrestling with, with troubles and, and grief and pain and difficulties in this nation. We pray for the injured and the grieving in the Parkland, Florida tragedy this week. It's hard for our minds to, to really grasp all of this. We pray, Father, that, that you will minister your grace and help. We pray, Father, that, that you will give the leaders of, of our nation wisdom about how to, uh, how to prevent these kinds of things from continuing. Father, we pray for those who are continuing to, to recover from other tragedies and other natural disasters. The lingering effects go far beyond even our memories of these things. We pray, Father, for people throughout the world who are wrestling and struggling with life. We think about people who are refugees. And we think of places where war is life. We ask, Father, for your grace in powerful ways. Father, we thank you for your compassionate grace of upon uh, our own church, even as we help our children understand the world. And today, as Westing Kids for Missions meets, and this ministry that meets every month, helps our children learn about your love and, and your, your love for the world. We pray, Father, for the leaders and the helpers and those who present and the children, that, that they would have a, a sense of your, your love for every person in this world. And Father, we, we thank you for your sustaining grace upon our brothers and sisters who face more opposition and persecution than we can often imagine. We 
In so many places, Christians, especially leaders, are jailed on false charges. We pray for safety, comfort. Pray for faithful witness during these difficult times. Father, open our eyes to your daily grace. Make us more and more grateful for who you are and all that you do. Give us grace to be seen as the most grateful, compassionate, loving people in the world. Not because we are good, but because you are. We pray this through Christ, who in grace goes to the cross for our sins and the sins of all people and teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 35 through 44. And as is the custom from the ancient times in the early church, would you please stand during the gospel reading? Matthew 27, 35 through 44. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's no junior church this morning, so you can stay with your parents for communion. But if you are ages 2 to 5 and would like to come to um, Children's Church, you may follow me.
Do you ever think much about shadows? You know, we, shadows can be, have different meanings for us. Sometimes shadows can be frightening. We, uh, you know, we sense danger lurking in the shadows. Sometimes shadows can be a relief. When the sun is hot, the what we're trying to find is a place where we can get into the shadow of something to make it a little bit cooler. Uh, shadows can be positive and they can be negative. Scripture portrays shadows in the same way. For instance, in Psalm 11, it describes the shadows of a place as a place of God's protection. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Isaiah 32 speaks of shadows as relief. It says, Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. And probably the most famous psalm, Psalm 23, describes the, the shadows with that sense of fear. 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There is this sense in which, in which shadows are, are things that are always a part of our lives. But we probably don't pay that much attention to them. I've been thinking about shadows over the past few weeks as I was pondering Lent this year. Thinking about the cross. Thinking about how the cross casts a shadow upon people and objects all around it. I was trying to find a way, I was exploring with different people, find a way for, to, to make a, a shadow of a cross to, to sort of fall down on us as we're sitting here this morning. But I couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. Couldn't figure out a way to do that. So the next best thing was to create this shadow. And we see how, how the light from the cross casts a shadow. It's a little distorted because of the corners and the turns and things that are there. But you see it. And one of the things about shadows is that in some, sometimes shadows can actually highlight and reveal. We often think, uh, think of shadows as hiding things. But the truth is they can often bring things to the surface. Because when you have a room full of light and a shadow is cast in that room... The, the shadow catches our eyes. And in that shadow, we begin to understand more and more about the object that the shadow is being cast from. And so over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about how the cross casts its shadow on those last hours of Jesus' life. One of, the, one of the people that we find the cross casting its shadow upon are the religious leaders. The people who, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The, the religious leaders from the very beginning of Israel were set apart to, to be the ones to connect people to God. Through teaching the law, through doing the sacrifices, through representing God. They, they are the ones who help people understand who God is. And they are the ones who represent the people to God and God to the people. They stand in that gap. They are given a, a special calling to stand in that gap. And to be people, with a, with, to be the ones who the people can look at and say, okay, they're helping me see a clearer picture of who God is. And at the same time, they are helping us express ourselves to God in worship. This is the calling of the religious leaders. From way back in the beginning of of Exodus, all the way through to the time of Jesus. What we find is when we read through the prophets, when we read through the historical books, when we read through the narrative of the gospel, we find that these religious leaders, by and large, betray their calling. They become enamored with self-interest. And instead of portraying a clear image of God, they more often than not portray a skewed image of God. Rather than being a source of encouragement and hope for the people, they become a, a source of discouragement and despair for the people. And when you get to to the entrance of Jesus onto the scene, we see it. All throughout Jesus' ministry, they continually fight with him and reject him. Their interactions with Jesus are almost always antagonistic. 
Their, their purpose of, of interacting with Jesus is to try to confuse him or to trick him or to make him look bad. But we see the culmination of who they are as we get into the passion narrative. Judas comes to them and says, I'll betray Jesus if you pay me. And they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And he says, I'll take it. But after he betrays Jesus, he is filled with remorse and guilt for what he's done. And so he comes back into into the the meeting house, the synagogue, and he says to the the religious leaders, "I, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to give you your money back. They say, too late now. And he says, well, I don't want it. He throws it onto the floor. And they look at each other and say, look, this is blood money. This is money that we use to commit murder. We can't put it back in the temple treasury. That wouldn't be right. Now they're thinking about what's right. So let's go buy a field and foreigners can be buried there. We'll do something good with it. We see it in their interactions with Pilate. Pilate wants to release Jesus. He says to them, you know, Barabbas or Jesus, take your pick. Which one do you want me to release to you? And they cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas. And he says, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? He said, crucify him. He says, you want me to crucify your king? And the religious leaders respond, some of the most astounding words in all of Scripture. We have no king but Caesar. Wow. But you see the shadow of the cross falling on the religious leaders most clearly as they stand around the cross. It's here. The shadow of the cross reveals and exposes their callous hard-heartedness. Here is Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering. This one they know is innocent. The one they have put there out of their own envy and self-centeredness and hatred. And they mock him. I suspect this might be one of the most difficult temptations Jesus faces in all of his life. I think it would be for me. You're, You're hanging there, you know you're innocent, and they are saying, if you're the son of God, come down and show us. If you're you're really who you say you are, then have God come and rescue you. And I'd be saying, okay, let's do it. Right? I'd be saying, Father, take them out. Let's show them who I really am. How hard it must have been in those moments for Jesus to not do that. You see the the callousness, the hard-heartedness in them. They have no remorse. They have no feelings of compassion for this man suffering and dying. It's pretty easy for us to look at that scene and to see how hard-hearted and callous these religious leaders are. But what if we turn it around? What if the person suffering and dying is our enemy? Is the person who hurt us deeply, the person who has threatened us 
and all that we value. The person who has done unspeakable things to us. The person who who has fought with us and, and who has alienated people from us. This person that just a very name brings anger into our souls. What if the roles are reversed? Would we show compassion? Or would we be pleased that they're getting what they deserve? It's a different picture when we turn it that way. Every one of us wrestles with feeling good when our enemies feel bad. Every one of us wrestles with with a sense of, of vengeance against someone, some group of people, something. Every one of us wrestles at times with, with feeling compassion for people who we think are getting what they ought to get. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for justice in the world because there is. God is certainly concerned about justice. God is certainly concerned about consequences. But even when justice is done, do we feel a sense of compassion for the people who have made such bad decisions, who've gotten themselves in such difficult place that, that they end up in these circumstances. Think about Jonah. You know, Jonah, he hates the Ninevites, and he has every reason in the world to hate the Ninevites. They have treated the people of Israel and most of the rest of the world brutally and enjoyed it. And God sends him to Nineveh and he doesn't want to go. And finally he ends up going. And God forgives them because they repent. And Jonah is angry about it. Because they shouldn't get that. There's something in us that wrestles with that. But here's the problem. It's difficult for us to be callous and hard-hearted toward some people. And not have that seep into our feelings for other people. We can't really compartmentalize our lives. We try. We try hard to compartmentalize our lives. We do everything we can to say, I can, I can feel this way here and, and I won't feel this way here. And for a while we can live with it. But after a while, we begin to seep. And hard-heartedness and callousness can begin to take over us. When you feel that kind of hard-heartedness and callousness toward your enemies, it's surprising how your list of enemies begins to grow. It skews our view of other people. That's the danger. That's the struggle. And the cross, all that the cross means, casts its shadow on us and exposes the truth and the reality of our struggle. 
our natural inclination when the, when the shadow of the cross falls on us is to run from the shadow. Let's, let's get out of that. Let's get away from it. It's the natural, most natural thing to do. We, we want to run. We want to hide. Because if we can get away from the conviction of the cross, then we feel okay. We, we talk ourselves into it. We say, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm not, I don't have to think about that anymore. The problem with that is that when we run from the shadow of the cross's conviction, we also run from the shadow of the cross's mercy and healing and grace. Which is really the end point of the cross. God's, God's end game with us is not, it's not conviction. God's end game is that as we are convicted of our sins, we will turn to him and find healing and grace and mercy and restoration and forgiveness. That's the point of the cross. It is to heal us. It is to re- restore us and, and to redeem us and to set us free from the, from the burden of this vengeance that we wrestle with. The self-interest that we wrestle with. It's healing. It's grace. But we struggle with that. We sometimes wonder if it's really worth it. Great philosopher Kierkegaard used to tell a lot of parables. And one of his, one of his parables is about an auditorium full of people. And the auditorium has two doors. One of them says, a lecture about heaven, and one of them says heaven. He says, by the time the auditorium is empty, every single person chooses the door that says, lecture about heaven. Now, I think Kierkegaard's a little bit cynical in painting that picture, but it is human nature. That we're much more interested in knowing about God than we are encountering God. We're much more interested in talking about the cross, talking around the cross, than we are actually engaging ourselves with the cross. But that's because we've lost our focus of what the cross is really about. Yes, it is conviction. Yes, it is exposing those places in us that need to be exposed, those painful places, those things that we'd rather avoid. But it is also ultimately the place of healing and hope and grace and forgiveness for those struggles. So what God wants to do for us is what Ezekiel describes in the 11th chapter of his prophecy. When he says, I, I'm gonna, I want to make your, your hearts of stone, I want to turn them into hearts of flesh. What he's really saying is, I want to take you and, and I want to make you fully human again. I want to make you the way I created you. What were you in, you were intended to be? To be people who rejoice in being my children. Because you know who I am and what I desire for you. Isn't it fascinating that from the cross, Jesus doesn't say, Father, show them all of your vengeance. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. 
That's what the cross is about. That's what the cross is offering us. As the the shadow of the cross falls on us, that's the ultimate goal God has for us is forgiveness. Because it's only in forgiveness that we find freedom and life and joy and peace and all that God created us to experience with him. That's why Jesus is hanging on the cross to begin with. And nowhere do we see that truth more clearly than at this table. At this table we come and yes, we feel a sense of conviction for our sin. But that's a good thing. Because when, we, when God allows us to feel that conviction, we can acknowledge it and bring it to him and lay it at his feet and repent of that and find forgiveness. And as we eat and drink, we experience both conviction and forgiveness. We acknowledge our struggle and we find freedom from our struggle. Because it's not just about what God has done in the past. It's about what God has planned for us in the future. His eternal kingdom. And we get to begin to experience some of that even now. So as you think about the cross and you feel, you sense the shadow of the cross falling upon you. And I sense it falling upon me. Well, we acknowledge it and stay there and let God speak to us about what we need to hear and find in his words, not just conviction, but grace, mercy, and healing, and freedom. Father, we thank you. For the cross. We thank you that it casts a long shadow to each of us. Father, in in this moment of silence as we as we sense the shadow of the cross falling upon each of us, speak into our hearts. Make us open to your word that we might find what you desire to give us. Father, we thank you for all of your gracious gifts. We thank you, Father, for this table, for the bread and the cup. As we eat and drink, may we sense 
the power of your spirit, the power of Christ at work in us, healing us, cleansing us, forgiving us, restoring us, setting us free through your grace. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning, we are receiving communion by the mode of intinction. This means to dip in. As you are released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. Altar rails always here available if you want to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer, we have a tray of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let us know when the, your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers here and cups. If you'd like those, just let me know as you come forward. We practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. Perhaps this is the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ and with the desire for, for him to work in your heart and to know his grace and mercy and healing, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
stand with us.
receive a benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.